Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information visit heartbeatchurch.org.au Today we continue our series in the book of Judges. Just to kind of give a recap, Judges recounts the spiral of Israelite society. And how the book has been structured is that with each narrative about the judges, things get worse and worse and worse, like a spiral. And when we come to the account of Gideon, Gideon is what we call a hinge. This is when things really take a deep turn for the worse. So Gideon, like when we looked at Gideon last week in part one, part one, we kind of know the traditional story of Gideon from Sunday school. Gideon is the fearful man who is threshing wheat in the wine press, and he's called by Yahweh's angel to go and lead the Israelites into deliverance. And Gideon overcomes his fear, and he leads the Israelites into battle. And that's often where we kind of finish the Gideon story. And this is why Gideon functions as a hinge, because there's two parts to Gideon's story. After the victory against the Midianites, Gideon's personality, it's like a switch. It changes completely and utterly. That's like a new character emerges. And... Bible scholars, they notice that there's a pattern to the Gideon story. It's what they call a chiasm, where there is... That's a bit bad, but there's a patterning of the story. So each part, the intro and the conclusion, finish with the same sort of story. So at the beginning we have here, A, Gideon fights idolatry. And then we have in part B, Gideon fights Midianites. Then we have here, this is, whoops, part B, one, Gideon fights Israelites. And then we have A, one, Gideon causes idolatry. That's a very significant pattern. For what it teaches us is that Gideon, the judge, who is meant to lead the Israelites into worship of Yahweh, in fact, causes even more problems. So in the parts A and B, God is here. But in this part here, which we're looking at in chapter 8, God is not present. And that's where we begin our narrative today, with Gideon here leading his 300 soldiers against the Midianites. And if, we turn to, if you turn to your Bibles to Judges chapter 8, we will go there, which is here. Judges chapter 8. 
Now, in Judges chapter 8, verse 1, Gideon has just led the miraculous victory over the uncountable Midianite forces. And we learn that they totaled about 135,000 men. Gideon only has 300. And when Gideon leads the initial charge, 120,000 Midianite soldiers are killed. And Gideon calls messengers and all the other tribes get involved and they start to help out Gideon. But then in verse 1, we have some tension. The tribe of Ephraim, the second most powerful tribe in Israel, gets angry at what they see as Gideon leaving them out of the battle. In fact, Ephraim, they have this key role in the victory. They kill two powerful leaders, one called Oreb and the other Zebed. Now, if this is how the story ended with Ephraim killing these two leaders, we think Gideon is a hero. The Israelites are in this really wonderful place. When we see just the breakdown of Israelite society, the Ephraimites are jealous because of Gideon's success. And they ask and they get very angry with him. And they ask him, why have you left us out? Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. And the idea in Hebrew is that these guys are really angry to the point that they may even lead a civil war at their anger. Now we remember Gideon. Gideon was this coward who was so scared to do anything when he is called by Yahweh to lead the Israelites. He asks for a sign. That sign's confirmed. When he is clothed with the Spirit, he asks for another two signs. And then when God reduces his army from 32,000 to 300, Gideon again gets another sign with a dream. Now it's with that final sign, Gideon is transformed. Now, with this transformation, Gideon becomes a capable leader. So here he is faced with this challenge of Ephraim's anger, anger that could lead to civil war. And Gideon, now the masterful leader, he asks this riddle. What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer. And Abiezer is the family line of Gideon. What Gideon is asking in this riddle is, even the very best of what I can accomplish is just the gleanings of what you can do. And the Ephraimites, who are known for the Bible being proud and boastful people, are happy with this. They think, yeah, you know what? He's right. The very best that Gideon can accomplish, it's just like our gleanings. His very best is comparison to our worst. And we see here Gideon is now becoming this really masterful leader. He has this great act of diplomacy. And we start to think, wow, Gideon actually might be able to lead the Israelites. He may be able to bring them back to worship of Yahweh. He can stop these tribal infightings and lead the Israelites into a unified people. But, 
But, and this is the hinge, this is when the narrative turns for the worse. When Gideon crosses the Jordan River, when he leaves the land of Canaan, a completely new Gideon emerges. It's quite shocking. His character changes in a moment. Gideon and his 300 men are pursuing the Midianites. And in particular, they're chasing two kings, Zalamu and Ziba. If you have trouble to remember, just remember the two Zs. He's chasing the two Zs, the two kings. And that is very, very important for understanding Gideon's motivations, chasing these two kings. And Gideon and his men are exhausted from their pursuit. And they arrive at an Israelite town that's outside of the promised land called Zukov. And there Gideon asks rather diplomatically, because he and his men have been chasing the Midianites for so long and they're hungry, he asks them for some bread. That seems like a straightforward request. Gideon and his men are tired, hungry, thirsty. Can this town of fellow Israelites meet their needs? And rather surprisingly, the people of Zukaf respond rather snidely. They ask, do you already have in the hands of Ziba and Zalmana in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? They fight back against his request. Now remember how Gideon has just responded to the tribe of Ephraim. We're thinking, oh man, Gideon, with his diplomatic skills, he will be able to change this situation to convince him to give his men bread. Now, out of the blue, Gideon's response is just for that when Yahweh has given Zeba and Zalmanuel into my hands, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Gideon goes along to the next town, a town called Peniel. And there again he asks for a similar request. And once again, the townspeople respond in the same way, no. And Gideon's response here is, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. And what's causing Gideon's angry, vengeful responses? Perhaps he is tired. Perhaps he's exhausted. Perhaps the hunger has made his patience run short. But there's something a little bit deeper in this. Remember when Yahweh called Gideon? What was his response? No. How long did it take Gideon to actually be convinced that this is what he was supposed to do? A lot. Now these towns that are outside of Canaan, outside the protection of Israel, who are outside the land by themselves, who were ruled by the Midianites, what they are in effect saying is that we don't actually believe you can do it. We need a sign. The hands of the kings. 
That's rather ironic. The man who needed at least five signs to believe in God's calling, now immediately when he's rejected, responds in anger. Now, in English, Gideon's request, it seems rather innocent and straightforward. But in the Hebrew, it's a little bit more ambiguous. In fact, when Gideon is talking to the first town of Zuka about his pursuit of Zeba and Zumana, what that does, how the sentence is structured in Hebrew, is it puts all the emphasis on the I. I am pursuing them. And the idea is it's trying to illustrate it's not actually Yahweh who's authorizing this. It is Gideon. I am doing this for my own purposes. Subtle messages. This is Gideon's personal mission, not Yahweh's. And in fact, you know how I said in this part of the narrative, chapter 8, Yahweh is missing? The only time Yahweh's name is used in this is not for prayer, it's not for blessing. It's in fact for a curse. He uses Yahweh's name as a curse upon these towns. Now, despite the lack of food, despite the hunger, despite the fatigue, despite everything, Gideon and his men keep on pursuing. And they continue to chase Zeba and Zalmu across the Transjordan region. And you can see on the map there, there's the town of Zucker and Peniel. And they continue to pursue them for some 130 kilometers to this town here of Kakwa. Now Gideon and his men, they use some unknown nomad's track. And there they surprise the Midianites who are resting. Now there's still 15,000 Midianite men left over. It's tiny in comparison to the 135,000 that they began with. So it's still a significant force. And when Gideon surprises them, as has done previously, Gideon is victorious. And what's important here is though Yahweh is not mentioned directly, his promise to Gideon still stands. He promised Gideon back when he first called him to this mission that he would be with Gideon and he would strike down all the Midianites. That promise still stands, even if Gideon's motivations are not right. And with the Midianites successfully defeated, Gideon now marches back to enact his revenge. And he captures a young man from the town of Zukov. And he forces him to give him all the details of the 77 elders in the town. And then when he arrives at the town, he taunts them with the two kings and he says, Here are Zeba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me, saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmana in your possessions? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He then takes the elders out of the town, picks up desert briars, and he literally threshes their flesh. 
Now remember when we first encountered Gideon. He is threshing the wheat in the wine press. Now we have this transformation. He is now threshing the flesh of men, but not Israel's enemies, his own people. And while that punishment seems cruel, he probably didn't kill any of them that we know. The same can't be said for the next tale, Peniel, where there he not only tears down their tower, he kills all the men of the city. Now that's very, very significant. For having a tower in a city meant that Peniel did not have any walls to protect it. And that tower was the last bastion of protection. It was where you put the women and children in if they were being attacked. So not only has Gideon destroyed the tower of protection for the most vulnerable people in that town, he has also killed all their men, the people who would fight their enemies. In effect, Gideon has left this town to the ravages of the other nations around him. Gideon was initially called to be the new Moses. All his call had this illusion, had these parallels to Moses' calling. They both react in the same way. They're fearful, they make excuses, they ask for signs. And if Moses could begin his journey like that as a fearful coward who needed signs time and time again to be reminded of this calling, then surely Gideon, who feels the same way, he will turn out like Moses. But Gideon instead is becoming an anti-Moses. Moses commanded the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, that they were, when they attacked their enemies, to wipe out all the males, to reduce the power of their enemy towns. Now Gideon is reversing that and putting it on his own people. And the reason for his actions, we learn, is because they mocked him. That vengeance, simply because they hurt his Feelings, not Yahweh's feelings, but his own. And after dragging these captured kings, we presume all the way back to his hometown here in Manasseh in Ophrah, he then asks them, to, he asks them a question. What kind of men did you kill at table? And their response is, they looked like you, a king's Sons, the truth is now revealed. The reason why he is pursuing these kings across the Jordan for 130 kilometers is because these two kings, the two Zeds, killed his brothers. Suddenly, we're given a glimpse into the complex character of Gideon. Gideon's fearfulness, we are learning, of the Midianites is because they killed his older brothers. Gideon's backstory, it's marred by tragedy. This is why he's threshing wheat 
in the winepress. This is why he is so fearful to attack the Midianites, for they have killed his older brothers. Gideon acknowledges that he is the least, presumably the youngest son of his father Joash. And perhaps Gideon is the only remaining son of his father. Gideon's fearfulness may explain why Yahweh actually called him. He called him to help his people. He called him someone who had tragedy in his life to lead the Israelites into a remarkable victory. But with Gideon's newfound confidence, when the Spirit clothed him, rather than doing Yahweh's bidding, rather than doing Yahweh's purposes, we are learning Gideon is using that newly empowered leadership strength for his own selfish reasons. And what is unbelievable is that Gideon actually acknowledges to them that if they had not killed his brothers, that he would not kill them. Now suddenly we're getting even deeper insight into Gideon. He actually doesn't care about the Israelites worshipping Yahweh. That's not his prime motivation. Had these kings not killed his brothers, he would not have cared about the Midianites ruling them. Gideon was not concerned about the idolatry. The oppression, certainly, because it's not good to live under oppression, but he did not care. The Israelites were worshipping Baal instead of Yahweh. His 200-kilometre pursuit of these Midianites is not to lead the Israelites back into worship. It's about his own self-interest. And the interests of family honour, we're assuming here that he's back in his hometown for his oldest son, who is too young to go off into battle, Jephthah. He is ordered to stand up and kill these two kings. And as the oldest son, it was his responsibility to ensure the family honour was met. But Jephthah, he's only a boy. And like his father, he's very, very afraid. In fact, we're told he won't draw his sword and kill them. See, Gideon was trying to humiliate these two kings by having them killed by someone who was far inferior to them. Instead, we're just presented here as Gideon as just being this cruel and vindictive person that really only cares about his own needs and wants. And the kings, and in failing to draw his sword, Jephthah is not only unmanly, he has dishonoured his father. And in in his humiliation, the kings taunt him, saying, do the job yourself. And after he has done it, and it's quite interesting, Gideon stoops down and picks up from their camels a golden ornament necklace. Now keep that in the back of your mind. Why is Gideon collecting gold? Now after killing two kings, Gideon is seen by his countrymen as a bona fide king. He is the king slayer. Therefore, 
he is king himself. And the people say, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, wait a minute. You have saved us from the hand of Midian. Save Yassar is used six times in this narrative. And all six of these times, they have been used to describe Yahweh's actions, either directly or indirectly. The very reason Yahweh reduced the 32,000 soldiers to 300 was so they did not think that they had defeated the Midianites on their own strength. And now the Israelites... They're equating their victory to Gideon himself. Now, after a series of really poor choices and learning about his true motivations, Gideon shines through for a moment. He rejects kingship and he rightly acknowledges that the reason is Yahweh is king. He cannot be king. But then he makes another simple request. He asks for a single earring from all the men and the share of the loot. And including all the loot and the necklaces he's taken from the Midianites, Gideon has a total of 1,700 shekels, or about 20 kilos of gold. Now what's interesting here is Gideon then makes an ephod, or a priestly garment. Now, at first, so I think, oh, maybe this is actually a good thing. Maybe this is what Gideon's going to do to lead the Israelites back into worship. For it was at Ophrah that Gideon destroyed his father's, Joash's altar to Baal and rebuilt an altar to Yahweh. Therefore, you need a priest to control the altar. Perhaps this is what Gideon is wanting to do, building an ephod, so a priest can minister before the people. But instead, think about it for a moment, a 20-kilogram ephod, a 20-kilogram garment. That's too heavy for a normal person to wear. And we start to learn here that this ephod is actually not to glorify Yahweh. It's to glorify Gideon and his Actions. And the end result of this ephod is the Israelites prostitute themselves out to it. They begin to worship this ephod. And the land, the narrative tells us that the land experiences rest for 40 years. But it's a tainted 40 years. The Midianites never lift their heads up again, they never invade the land of Israel. But can you say the Israelites are at rest? And for the first time in the narrative of Judges, we find the Israelites falling into idolatry before the judge is dead. And this is why Gideon is what we call the hinge of the narrative. This is where the Israelite society begins to plunge into freefall. For if they cannot remain obedient when Gideon is alive, 
What hope do they have when he is dead? And despite rejecting kingship, Gideon says one thing in public, Yahweh is king, I will not be king. But he does something different in practice. Gideon forms a dynasty. And we learn that he has 70 sons, perfect number of sons. He has many wives and concubines. Now this is what kings do. This is the practice of a Canaanite king. Have lots of sons, lots of wives, and a concubine. And what's very interesting is that Gideon has a son by a concubine, and his name is Ablimelech. My father is king. Does it mean father as in Yahweh is king, or my father as in Gideon is king? And that's the ambiguity the narrative gives. What is Gideon's true motives? What is driving him? And there is that cycle. Things return when Gideon was first called. He destroyed Baal worship. Things are right back to the beginning. Ophra is now once more the centre of false worship. And Gideon's son, Abimelech, as we'll see next week, has a huge role in plunging Israelite society into something even worse. And again, narrative of Gideon, it's quite, he, he presents us as a complex and contradictory character. His behaviours, his attitudes and his beliefs, they're very, very mixed. But the fundamental flaw of Gideon is his fear. And it was a fear that Yahweh intended to strip away. Each time Gideon asked for a sign, Yahweh would do something just to force Gideon to trust him that little bit more. And when Yahweh took away the 32,000 men of Gideon's army and made them 300, Gideon was left completely and utterly exposed. He had to trust in Yahweh. And with that trust, with that empowerment, Gideon could have done amazing things. But instead, he used his newfound confidence. He used his newfound gifting, his clothing of the Spirit, not for God's purposes, but his own. So Gideon speaks into our selfish motivations. All of us have been given giftings. All of us have been given this Holy Spirit to, give, uh, to equip us for God's service. What we learn here is that when God's Spirit is upon us, we don't become robots. We don't just go on to autopilot and do the things God wants us to do. We still have choice. And what it teaches us quite terrifyingly is that you can be clothed in the Spirit, yet you can make horrendous, selfish choices. You can take that gifting, use it for God's glory, or use it for your own glory. Gideon had the potential to become the next Moses. 
And we saw a glimpse in that. How he dealt with the tribe of Ephraim, who if you look at the rabbi's teachings, they described them as kind of a worthless tribe who were so selfish and self-centered and thought that they were number one. He managed to appease their anger. If Gideon had done that with the towns of Zukoth and Peniel, had he just left them to Yahweh's justice, or had he used diplomacy, he could have healed those rifts in Israel. And like Moses, bring the Israelites as a unified whole, worshipping him. We see in Gideon, the reason for his wrath against those two towns was because they prevented him from fulfilling his selfish goals. That unmitigated, that raging vengeance inside of him. And perhaps our motivations aren't vengeance. Perhaps our motivations aren't to kill the enemies who murdered our brothers. But all of us have deep fears. All of us have things that we want to accomplish that aren't part of God's plans and purposes. And friends, the story of Gideon, it's a warning for us of what happens when a leader when a person is called by God, instead of doing the things that they are supposed to do, become selfish and self-centered. And in fact, instead of leading God's people into worship, make things even worse than ever before. Friends, what Gideon's narrative points us to the need for a better leader. A leader who's not driven by his ego. A leader who's not driven by his fear. And a leader who will not use the giftings that he has been given for his own selfish purposes. But the leader who came to serve and not to be served. The leader who gave his life as a ransom for many. Friends, learn from the mistakes of Gideon. For there is a little bit of Gideon in all of us. We're driven by our fear and we're driven by our selfish motives. Don't use the giftings God has given for any other purpose than his glorification. Let me pray for us. Lord, we see in Gideon a man who is deep, a deep contrast, deep contradictions. And Lord, and we are people of contrast and contradictions, who say one thing and do another. And we see just in Gideon, Lord, his tragic backstory, but also his terrible motivations for doing things. And Lord, I pray that with the giftings you have given us, with the spirit you have given to empower us, that we don't squander that, that we use those giftings to worship you, not to lead people astray, but to lead people into glorifying your name. So it's in your name we pray for your help in doing this. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Heartbeat Church podcast. For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.